Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, any time. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end. We're also going to share an exciting opportunity. And please feel free to share this with others who you know who will also find it of interest. Today's guest is somebody who I've known for quite a while and for whom I have tremendous respect. You're going to get to hear in his own voice what I think, his intelligence, that he's quite eclectic, and he's really very interesting. Um, Arie Green is the author of My Israel Trail, Finding Peace in the Promised Land, about his hike on what's called in Hebrew the Shvil Yisrael, the Israel Trail, an 800-mile Israel National Trail from the border with Lebanon in the north to a lot on the Red Sea in the south. He currently serves as Chief Strategy Officer at Gigawatt Global, which is a renewable energy platform for Africa that's based here in Jerusalem. Ari is a direct descendant of one of the first Jewish families in America, and I didn't know that. I want to learn more about that. Um, he grew up in San Francisco and moved to Israel over 30 years ago. He's a former senior advisor to Natan Sharansky Israel's, uh, in Israel's prime minister office and has been a high-tech business executive and consultant for the past two decades. He continues to be active in a number of initiatives promoting freedom and democracy in the Middle East. Ari is a frequent and dynamic and inspiring speaker on Israel and reasserting the legitimacy of Zionism, as if we should have to continue to reassert it, but unfortunately we do, as well as on today's Jewish identity and spirituality, human rights in the Middle East, Israel's challenges in the media, renewable energy, Israel's relationship with Africa, and Israel's startup nation and current affairs. As I said, very eclectic. Ari serves on the board of Israel is Really Cool and the Ma'ale Film School, which I also didn't uh, know or didn't know that I knew, and was co-founder and director of Media Central, which goes back to when we met, a Jerusalem project providing services for the foreign press in the region, which is super important today. While we're not promoting renewable, when he's not promoting renewable energy, REA also grows grapes and makes wine. Now, there's a lot more, but without further ado, REA, you know, as I said to you just before we started recording, and I mean it with sincerity, this is a conversation that I could have and should have had a lot longer ago, and I'm really thrilled to have you join Inspiration from Zion today. Thanks so much, Jonathan. I appreciate it. And maybe you went into a bit uh, more detail than necessary for your listeners, but uh, I appreciate it. I, of course, our our ongoing friendship and connection for what is basically well more than than two decades and I very much appreciate the work that you do both supporting Israel and encouraging all of our friends around the world, whether Christian, Jewish or otherwise, to understand the 
complexities and the nuances of the issues that we're, we're constantly dealing with and, and the challenges. Absolutely. And, and especially now, not, not, oh, not, not uniquely now, but especially now, by the way, if I'm not mistaken, I, I, I made a mental note of it and I deliberately didn't check because I wanted to see if my memory serves well. One of the old, other cool things that you do every year around your birthday is you gather people in uh, Tamol Shilshom, a great Jerusalem, a unique restaurant cafe for your birthday. That's coming up, isn't it, this month? Well, I thank you for mentioning it, Jonathan. And yes, it's it's been uh, literally 20 years. Last year was my 60th, and it was the, the, the 21st time that I did it, having started in, on my 40th. It's a relatively unique institution. I'm lucky enough to have uh, a few friends, yourself included, who stop by and, and sit and read for an hour or two and really have a chance to, to reconnect. Yeah. And you, of course, know that in Jewish tradition, the, the, the Hebrew birthday is considered like a, a, a minor or a small uh, informal day of atonement or Yom Kippur, a day for reflection and contemplation. And I've chosen to, to, to use it in that way, including gathering around me friends and family who, who I you know don't spend enough time with. And so that is true. And in fact, my Hebrew birthday is this Wednesday night and Thursday, I mean, tomorrow evening and Thursday, but I'm not this year holding my, my annual gathering at Tomorrow Show in light of the war and yeah. devastation, the suffering and anguish of so many people. I just felt, you know, we do have a, a philosophy that I know we share based on strong Jewish tradition that we, we don't put off celebrations of things like weddings or bar mitzvahs or what have you that are, that, you know, the continuation of our life, and we'll get into this perhaps even further in our conversation about how do we continue some semblance of normal life in the midst of this 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 crushing and, and difficult um, situation we find ourselves in in the midst of war. But something like this, which is a lot more of a of a choice, it's it's a you know it's not a need to have; it's a nice to have. I decided this year what I'm doing for my birthday is to spend again some real quality time with closest to me. Uh, my family in particular, um, on my Hebrew birthday, taking a walk in the desert, uh, in the Judean desert, and Sumerian hills are, as you said, the heartland of the Jewish people to reconnect to, to my sense of, of belonging and identity and sense of purpose that we share, yeah. especially in these challenging times. But I'm not going to host the uh, the annual gathering. That will wait till next year. Well, I, I'll look forward to next year because it's not only a matter of reconnecting, but I every time I've been able to join you, it's not only reconnecting with you, which I enjoy, but also connecting with other people who who fit into this eclectic world in which you exist. And that's always enjoyable. But you're right. And actually, I had a birthday last week, I think. And my wife has something planned for me this coming week. And I, and I guess I can go on record and say it. I kind of wish we weren't because I don't I don't feel like we should be. Celebration needs to be limited to to the things that are important. Birthdays have never been important to me, um, and this year I think we need to be much more introspective. But in any event, uh, a happy, happy birthday! And I and I do think within the context of you know what is appropriate for the time, it's okay for you and your wife or close friends or family to celebrate. It's okay to celebrate at such a time, um, but yeah, and it is more modest. You know, way than we might have otherwise. Well, given current, I had all my almost all of my children except my son, who's in Gaza at the moment. My son-in-law, who's in the reserves just outside of Gaza, and my daughter-in-law, 
who wasn't able to join, but all the rest of my family, especially including the grandchildren, we didn't even talk about your kids and grandchildren, together with us for Shabbat. And you know what? Truthfully, I don't need more than that. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I so much, I mean, you and I have known, we've always had this kind of visceral connection. Uh, and this is just one more demonstration of it. I, I had two out of my three children who are now living in the States uh, temporarily. Hopefully, oh, um, and and I had a connection with uh, all seven out of my eight grandchildren. I connected with uh, yesterday, some on video and some. First, the only one I didn't was the a, a little baby, four months old in Washington D.C. who was napping, didn't want to wake him up. Uh, but yes, exactly. exactly. Right, a little bit of time on my Eden birthday with my parents, who at, at age ninety-one made Aliyah last year at age ninety to Israel. That's amazing. Uh, and with my my wife's parents, who uh, and 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 with uh, some of the kids and some some very close friends, but very 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 uh, low key. Amazing. Okay. Well, it should be happy and many more. Um, you related. You said you're going to go for a hike. Let's talk about your book, because I love people. I, I've actually never read it. Um, I know. No, I know. I'm embarrassed. I, yeah. Uh, at least at least I'm honest. Um, but I think your book, I, I want to know what's the genesis of your book. And I also think there's a message today. No? Well, I, I, I appreciate that. And I do think so. And by the way, if you don't have it, I'd be signed copy. Um, not that you have to read it. Um, I, I'm lucky enough. I'll start with the end as opposed to the beginning. I'm lucky enough to have heard enough people who are not my friends and family, um, including reviewers on Amazon complete strangers um, that who have said that the book was enjoyable and inspiring and uplifting. And, and that's obviously very nice as a first time author to hear. Um, so I'm certainly happy to, to say a few words about it. Um, and uh, it, it's not a bestseller yet, but at least it has proved popular among those who have, who have, uh, who have found it or discovered it or, or stumbled across it. Um, it can be described, I think, relatively simply. In terms of both the genesis of the book itself and the, and the main messages, why it's today. Um, I I suffered uh, um, through a, a devastating divorce, not my choice, um, which has some different backgrounds to it. And discuss it obviously in the book and very forthrightly with the permission of my former wife. Um, and uh, so as a result of this divorce, which took two and a half years and was not something that I that I chose. Uh, it really turned my world upside down. And I just decided to go and hike the Israel Trail, which is a thousand kilometers or thousand, yeah, thousand kilometers, but 800 miles long. Um, I did it uh, on my own at age 51. Uh, it took uh, 48 days of hiking. Uh, wow. Eight weeks. I didn't hike on Shabbat on Sabbath. Um, did it all alone with a 50 pound pack, 25 kilo pack on my back. Um, and, uh, as I said, for eight, eight weeks nonstop, and it was a transformative experience. So the book itself, I, I didn't intend to read it. I, I basically got out there on the trail in order to have some time to kind of see, see, see what I needed to do to get my life back on track. And it's kind of a funny turn of phrase, but you know, I was looking for getting back on track. In the end, I, I ended up hiking the trail. It's all trek or track. Um, and and found my way back to a sense of acceptance based on the humility that I experienced in, in walking hour after hour, day after day in the desert, beginning uh, down in the south. And 
it also gave me a sense of both acceptance of uh, of what had happened to me, and it uh, it uh, enabled me to focus on the gratitude I have for all the blessings in my life, including the privilege of living here in our ancestral homeland and, and the privilege of, of hiking through it, which gives you a very different perspective on the land, the geography, the history, the people of Israel, the the the, the archaeology. There's just you know you can't you can't get the same feeling for any uh, necessarily for any country by driving through it or looking out from the from the windows of a bus or a train or a car. Walking the land it was was uh, a very powerful experience. And within all of that, um, what happened was towards the end, I realized that these lessons that I'd learned, humility, gratitude, reaching a sense of forgiveness for my former wife and what she had done in terms of literally destroying our family uh, from, from different perspectives and, and developing a renewed sense of purpose to give meaning to my life, which included uh, my Jewish identity, connection to the land and our people, our history. Um, that became the book. So it's kind of two books in one. It's a description of the hike itself, if you will. Uh -huh. An Israeli, Bill Bryson's uh, um, book about the Appalachian Trail, A Walk in the Woods. This is the Israeli version of that. Sure. It's also a description of these lessons that I've learned that helped me to, to get over my divorce, which can help others who are facing their own personal challenges, whether that's, you know, losing a loved one or, or losing a job or a divorce or, or other things, obviously, you're part of, of all of our lives. And, and what struck me is that we have, we're still in the midst of a war. Um, I don't think we've had time sufficiently people individually or as a nation to grieve because we're in the midst of it. Yesterday, I was speaking with somebody how, in a sense, actually an article that I may want to write, in a sense, we're all mourners. We're all in the midst of mourning. And we haven't had that time yet. And the dust will settle. But when the dust does settle, so many of us, so many of us have had our lives turned upside down. Some of us with with loved ones who have been killed, some of them who have been injured, and, and others like my, as we record this, my son and daughter-in-law are married exactly six months today, and he spent nearly half of that in the army, which isn't good for, it's not good for my daughter and son-in-law who are married several years with, with three kids, but it's surely not good for them. And, and, and there's going to be a lot of trauma unpacking that we're going to need to do. And, and maybe the Israel trail will be um, a, a way for uh, people to do it here. But I think that you have a very good message for people outside. Um, Arya, where can people get the book? Thanks for asking. Um, first of all, it's available on Amazon. It's available direct from my publisher, uh, which is called Cedar Fort in the States. It's also at Barnes & Nobles here in Israel. It's Stamatsky uh, all online. And if people would like a signed copy, uh, I'm always happy to, to sign a copy of the book and send it, uh, whether it's here in Israel or even sending it from Israel to abroad. It's obviously an original It's not, uh, not, not that expensive. So, right. so, uh, I also, I I can be reached via email. I have a website, myisraeltrail.com. Right. Uh, and you can put my email if you want uh, in this uh, this um, podcast, re.preen at gmail.com. Right. I always tell people, I try to remember, but then in the, in the rush to make the show notes, I sometimes forget. So I just want people to know uh, myisraeltrail.com and, and uh, 
and and I and I'll get myself a copy. Um, let's take a quick break. Uh, maybe it will help me. I've always wanted to do the Israel Trail anyway. Let's take a quick break and come back. And I want to talk about some of the contemporary issues and how what what was the origin of this conversation just I think this week. Uh, but let's take a quick break. Friends, Israel's at war, and the war may get worse before it gets better, much worse. It's going to be a long war because the enemy is the epitome of evil. It's not just a matter of overcoming troops on a battlefield, but overcoming a theology, an ideology, an evil one. While the Genesis 123 Foundation has been overwhelmed with the support of so many donations to the Israel Emergency Campaign, there's so much more that needs to be done. We've invested your donations that we've received so far strategically to make the biggest impact possible, whether helping with soldiers and their equipment and personal needs, to providing civilian security for outlying border communities, to relocating and settling several families from near the Gaza war zone, launching the global petition drive to support Israel in the face of pressure for a ceasefire and long-term needs for at-risk children traumatized now more than ever before. Please take a moment to pause this conversation right now and go to love.genesis123.co and donate generously. We value your trust and we will keep all donors informed about how and where your donations are being used to contribute to make the biggest impact possible. And when you use that link, love.genesis123.co. You can also send your prayers and words of encouragement to Israelis of all backgrounds, just sending your love, something that we need so desperately. Thank you, and God bless you and your loved ones. Okay, Arie, um, again, amazing and eclectic and appreciated. Um, earlier this week, you... I, I didn't even know what to expect it. I saw a, a something pop up on one of the apps on my phone that I that you tagged me in something on LinkedIn. And I thought, oh, okay, that's nice. And I checked it out. And I was so excited, honestly, to see. I didn't understand what was going on. And I thought, oh, I'm just one of these people at the end of your list that you tagged because you thought you were writing something important, which you did. Yeah. But it wasn't tagging me and all these other people who I hope read your post. It was giving a shout out to me in a sense. Yeah. Because you had written something specifically relating to the language we use and the and the um uh the 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 uh the, the imperative to bring the to bring the hostages home. Can you talk about what made you write about that? What's your what was the language? And then we'll come to why our petition was something that you stumbled upon and was significant. Right. And, and I supported and I signed also. Um, first of all, you know, Jonathan, but for, for our listeners to, to know, I have a I have a background of about 40 years in communication, both business as an executive and, uh, and starting out in the PR world and marketing have you consulted for different companies, large and small, um, and also over a decade working with international media, as well as the experience that you described working in the Prime Minister's office, which included a lot of what we call Hasbara, which is the word that, that people know refers to kind of explaining um, Israel's position to the world. And uh, sometimes I stumble upon 
communication types of activities which jar me. And one of the situations of the last few months has been more and more jarring. And it's, I'm not sure how cynical to be. It could have been an innocent way of looking at the situation that we faced with these, this, this terrible, terrible situation, uh, not just of the horrific brutality of the last attacks, but the holding of innocent civilians, young, old men, women, children, what have you, as hostages. Um, but the way that our society and the international community has has uh, approached um, what can be done about the situation of all these, of Hamas holding these hostages. Basically, what I'm referring to is this. In the very beginning, it was a great clue that everybody understood who was the actor responsible for the situation we find ourselves in. Now, most supporters of Israel still recognize the justice of, you know, the, the fact that if there ever was a just war, like World War II against the Nazis, there's no question that we who understand these things, and I don't mean only supporters of Israel, anybody who has an objective of the understanding of what Hamas is, what it stands for, what Iran's goals behind Hamas and the others who support Hamas and Hezbollah for that matter, whether it's Iran, Turkey, Qatar, or or various different elements of European or American society, the goal of destroying Israel and the brutality of, of these horrific attacks um, is clear to those who have an objective understanding of reality and history that, that creates a situation where um, there's a recognition that Israel's war against Hamas now as a proxy of Iran is a just war. But even understanding that, within the first two weeks of uh, after October 7th, what we saw was the development of a campaign to bring those hostages home, which everybody understands and supports. We all agree those hostages should be should be brought home. But here's where we get into my background in media, in language, in PR, and also psychology. What does that imperative mean, bring them home? Who is it addressed to? And the answer is, and again, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt, because one could say cynically that there are political motives behind the phrase of bring them home, which would play into kind of an anti-government or anti-DB approach to criticism of the current government. I don't want to go there, not in this country. What I want to point out is the genuine pain of the families of the hostages, just like the families of Gilad Shalit or others in the past, is both acknowledged and understandable by all of Israeli society. But the question is, is our demand directed appropriately at the government of Israel, demanding bring them home, bring them home now, which implies make concessions, go for a ceasefire, stop uh, uh, and prosecuting this war, stop going after Hamas in terms of the military campaign and find ways to convince them to release the hostages. Is that the appropriate direction that we as a society or the international community should be looking at this issue? Or, and that was the point of my post, and in the end, that's how I connected it to your campaign because your initiative was specifically directed at the international communities uh, um, saying something very simple. Our demand is release them. Release them now. I mean, this is my post had to do with different hashtags. I'm not thinking about the social media. It is about social media activism, but it's also about the fundamentals that drive that activism. Our demand should be free those damn hostages. Release them. Who? Hamas. Right. Hamas 
should be required to release these hostages. And the imperative, therefore, is not only is really government to do more, to act differently, to find another way to bring these hostages home, which is a legitimate desire, but if you're talking about political activism, especially on social media, the responsibility has to be laid to the feet of Hamas, which means the International Red Cross or the United Nations or the European Union or the American government or others should be not just encouraged, but, but required to use all the powers at their disposal, at, at their disposal, to push for the release of those hostages. So that was that was the distinction I was making, and I, and I felt and still feel that even though the intentions of those behind the campaign, which is obviously to secure the release of the hostages, you know, ensure their safe return home, um, are better served in the long run by by changing the focus pressuring Hamas for their release rather than pressuring the Israeli government to make more concessions or, or, or whatever. Right. And that's what led to, to my recognition of your position, which I thought was admirable and very important to support. So I posted in all my social media accounts, Twitter and LinkedIn, Facebook. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, one of the, first of all, anyone who has not yet signed or heard about the petition, go to genesis123.co. And you can sign the petition there. And I encourage everybody, I've been encouraging everyone who has signed to share it with at least 10 or 20 others, because I'd like to see hundreds of thousands or more. There should be. And and we haven't set a date uh, as to when we're going to actually go and deliver this. Actually, that's something I'd love to speak with you about offline, REA, because it needs to be dramatic, not just through an email. Yeah. Um, that I learned from my days as an activist for for the Soviet Jews yeah. in the 1970s and 80s, um, mostly 80s, I suppose. But but also what we were calling upon is to allow Israel to 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 pursue the war and its goals as Israel needs to, and that the pressure from all of these international bodies and the the G7 that you alluded to. Um, but I also even included all of the countries at the time. There were, if I'm not mistaken, 27 countries whose citizens were hostages in Gaza. And I wanted to include all of them, even if, for instance, Tanzania, which had two citizens taken and killed, even if both of their bodies have been repatriated to Tanzania and have been buried, and maybe all the Thai hostages have, I don't know, but those countries need to know that this was not simply an aggression against Israeli Jews. We still have Israeli Arabs who are hostages and non-Israeli citizens, and it needs to be releasing them all and, and not about Jews versus not Jews, because I was afraid. I don't think it was in the language of the petition. I was afraid we were going to see something like 1976 and Tebi, where the terrorists who hijacked the Air France plane to Uganda immediately separated out the Jewish and the non-Jewish uh, hostages and let all the non-Jews go. Yeah. And we have a we first of all the 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 criminal the, the 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 war crime that Hamas committed is in fact a war crime against the world. It's not just against yeah. the Israel and the Jewish people. Although we actually have seen unfortunately a little bit of that you're leading to the Entebbe, there's other examples of separating the Jews even more recently. But within this context, you know, because of Hamas's relationship with Iran and Iran's relationship with Putin, 
So all the Russian uh, dual citizens have been released because of relations with, uh, I guess, Thailand or others. Uh, the Taiwanese workers almost all were released. Um, there, there are others as well, and it is unfortunate that has been. But that's all part of some of the, I won't say games, but but the negotiations and that and the, the challenges faced by the Israeli government, by Egypt and Qatar and the states and others who are trying to help to arrange the release. And, and this is a, a moral quandary, which I can only say that I'm I'm happy that I'm not a member of the security cabinet making these decisions. Because on the one hand, clearly the imperative to get as many released as soon as possible was pressing. But on the other hand, the imperative not to allow those distinctions to be made, to demand that all the hostages be released immediately, was also you know, a, a, a morally strong and, and central point. And so how to make that decision, I, I don't even allow myself I can be critical of government decisions, you know, right, left, and center. Um, but you know, there was no right answer here, and there still isn't um, with regard to that issue of the distinctions between young and old, men and women, this nationality versus that nationality. Very, very difficult. I'm glad you said what you did because I'm also grateful that I'm not in that position. We as Jews have an imperative. To, re to save lives and redeem captives. Those are two central commandments that we live by. And, and you can hang your hat on the saving of one hostage, who's specifically who's alive. Yeah. And, and yet we also know that ceasefires embolden the terrorists. Ceasefires allow the terrorists to entrench and entrap our soldiers for when the ceasefire ends and there is no good decision but i'm curious i'm even though you said you're like me you're glad that you weren't you or you're not in the security cabinet making those decisions what would you do differently well i'll go on a little here that, that i wanted i want to um qualify my answer with a recognition that these are hypothetical discussions that you and i are having we all have around the dinner table around the shabbat table or you know, with our friends or what have you. Um, uh, so, so I don't pretend that any of this is easy, nor that what I'm about to say would definitely be my stance if pushed came to shove. But on a theoretical level, philosophical, I have believed. I, I moved here in 1984, and that was the first year the the Jibril exchange, the Jibril exchange, something like I don't remember the numbers. I have it somewhere in the post that I did it after. Uh, sorry, I have a month ago. Ahmed Jibril, if I remember his name correctly, right? right? He was a major Palestinian Fatah leader, Fatah? terrorist. Yeah, um, and and uh, they believe that we released a thousand security prisoners for the the bodies of four soldiers in Lebanon, um, and that has been repeated itself over and over. And we have absolute evidence, documented evidence of the recidivist nature of uh, Palestinian Arab Muslim terrorists who are in Israeli jail for two months or two years or 20 years and when released in a prisoner exchange for uh, the the valid goal that we you just said that we in Jewish tradition and Israeli society believe this is a is a is a fundamental goal of our society which is the release of captives and hostages um, that these released Palestinian Arab Muslim terrorists uh, return to terror 
and with uh, the best or biggest or unfortunate or the worst example of that, of course, is uh, Sinwar. Sinwar is the head of Hamas today who was in an Israeli prison for uh, terrorist activity for, uh, for over a decade. And, and we let him go in a previous prisoner exchange. In a prisoner exchange. He was with the Shalit exchange. Now, right. I have been opposed to these on a theoretical... Now, you didn't mention, I don't think, but I have a master's in international relations and my focus at the Hebrew University, this was almost 40 years ago, was on conflict resolution. And I studied Gandhian methods of conflict resolution at UC Berkeley prior to that. And so I, I at least have a little bit of knowledge. I'm not an expert, but a little bit of background in some of the more esoteric elements of these kind of issues, negotiation, what have you. And my fundamental principle is, as Benjamin Netanyahu actually uh, insisted in his book about not getting into terror, uh, that that these kind of exchanges are wrong, both morally, politically, societally, diplomatically, and strategically, because, as you just said, they don't just reward the terrorists for the taking of hostages, they actually encourage it. And our Jewish tradition goes back to, you'll have to focus, I don't recall which rug it was in medieval Europe who uh, was taken hostage by uh, a, a local uh, uh, ruler and forbade his followers from paying what was seen as unduly high ransom right. specifically for the halakhic, the Jewish legal principle that that would only encourage more hostage taking. Right. Now, so this isn't this isn't rocket science and it's not new. And and what's unfortunate is, of course, and that's why I say I'm glad I'm not in that position. And that's why I qualified my statement by saying I can say it very strongly in this conversation. I don't know what pressures are, or we do know what pressures are brought to bear on the prime minister and the government of Israel in each situation. I believe the decisions have been wrong. I believe that as a society, the value that we have in preventing future hostage taking, which means saving the lives of untold numbers. We don't know who they are. We can't give them names. We can't say how many there would be, but there's no question that if we did not agree to exchange security prisoners for hostages taken, then there would be fewer hostages taken in the future. But that's the problem. The families of the hostages themselves, the international community, and many others pressure our governments to say, do everything in your power, including releasing security prisoners, in order to release these including reducing the intensity of the war and the military, the defensive military operations that they carry, including agreeing to some sort of a humanitarian pause if we're not going to follow the ceasefire. So very, very difficult. Yeah, 100%. And to, to underscore a, a point you made before we take a break, um, while it doesn't mean that another terrorist leader wouldn't have risen up and October 7th might not have happened anyway, if, how many years ago was Sinwar released? Seven, yeah. eight, ten, ten years, however long ago he was released. If he hadn't been released, we now look at the 250, uh, some of them are, are, are dead and some of, 100 plus have been freed and another 129 or so are still in captivity, but you could make the case that if Sinwar hadn't been released, underscoring the point you just made, maybe these people would still be sitting in their homes. You know, I'll go, uh, I'll go one step further, if I may. I have a very good friend who's on the far, far left of these 
or, or social political, what have you. He's an activist. He is a very good friend. We've shared the stage many times. We actually work together. His name is Gershon Baskin. He is a, a column that he writes every week for the Times of Israel. He used to be from Jerusalem Post. He's a peace activist. Um, and uh, he was actually involved or even instrumental in the original context with the Hamas leadership that led to the release of Gilad Shalit. Um, I mentioned already that I opposed that and vociferously one soldier, although the life of one soldier we do feel has a strategic value, a universal, a, 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 an existential value at, from the Jewish perspective. Uh, we say the saving of life, of course, you know, right. our tradition says the saving of one life is, is as if you saved an entire world. So every individual is a world to We do hold that value, but, but that's one of the challenges we have in the modern in the whole issue of the Zionist movement, and I returned to sovereignty in our ancestral homeland after 2,000 years, we as a modern nation state are grappling with moral and political and, and social issues that the Jewish tradition hasn't had to grapple with for 2,000 years. And so that value of saving a single life as if it's an entire world has to be balanced up with the national security interests yeah. of the state and the society as a whole. And here we have a very, very specific um, yardstick I said we had numbers and statistics, which I can't quote off the top of my head, but we also have specific examples of security prisoners who were released. Now, Sinwar is the best example, but he's just the head of Hamas. I'm talking about people who actually carried out Correct. brutal terrorist attacks over the last 20 years, who were released in a hostage exchange. Therefore, you can actually say that this particular victim of terror yes. was a direct yes. result yes. of the release of that terrorist. Right. And you can do that among the 3,000 or so Palestinians who crossed the border, among them what we would call non-combatant civilian Palestinians who also became terrorists because of their behavior, but not as uh, members of Hamas itself, as we know. Many, many crossed over into Israel and carried out these atrocities without being part of the initial planning uh, or, or membership in Hamas. The point is, we now know that of those 3,000, there were... There were uh, quite a few who also themselves were released security prison. So it becomes very explicit and specific, not just theoretical, yeah. that, that uh, um, the release of hostages uh, has not just a generic impact, but right. specific repercussions. And therefore, I, I'm against them from, from the beginning to the end. Okay, so thank you for that. I want to take a break, and then when we come back, I want to throw a, a, a theoretical curveball at you in this conversation. So get ready, choke up. I want to pause in the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis 123 Foundation. This year, we have been going out all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill, they are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers you can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. 
That's genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. And when you do, you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people. Please join us. Okay, Arye, um, before I throw my curveball at you, uh, you had brought up Gershon Baskin. Actually, you and I have um, battled a little with him, tag team at sometimes, albeit not planned on on some of his social media posts. But you, we we digressed into something, and and I, I'm welcome you bringing back up whatever it was that brought it into your mind. Well, so the reason I mentioned Gershon is that he had posted early on in this uh, conflict in this war. He posted something where he used a phrase, and this is a, a, a paraphrase, I didn't rephrase exact words, that our primary goal is to secure the release of the hostages. And I responded very explicitly, but, but strongly saying, no, our primary goal as a government, as a society, is ensuring the safety and security of our society, of our civilians, of our nation state. That's our primary goal. The release and the return of the hostages is an additional goal. It is a it is a very important goal. If we define the goals of this military campaign of this war as uh, destroying Hamas and preventing them from ever being able to carry out this kind of attack, or even being able to rule the the Gaza Strip ever again and secure the release of the hostages, yes, those are our two fundamental goals. But for him to say and for one to say that the primary goal of our society or of this campaign or of this period is the release of hostages, I I apologize. And I do so again for see the seeming heartlessness of the statement. But the bottom line is, just as we say about soldiers, conscripted or voluntary, the life of an individual soldier, the, 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 the purpose, I think it was General Patrick, who said something a little bit humorous but very clear. He said, our goal is not to die for our country. Our goal is to make the other poor right." Uh, the poor soul died for his country. But the point, that the, the bottom line of that is a soldier's role is to put his life in danger for the betterment, for the protection of the greater society to a certain extent, although the hostages didn't choose that role. So it's a different context. The bottom line of my argument with Gersh is our, we have one overriding goal, which is the progress, the security, the, the flourishing of our nation state the, the return, as I said, of the, of the sovereignty of the people of Israel to the land of Israel and our modern nation state called uh, the state of Israel. And our goal, our overriding goal is to protect and preserve and to enable the flourishing of that state. We are not going to sacrifice casually the lives or welfare or property of anybody, Jewish, Israeli, Muslim, Arab, Palestinian, or others casually. But when push comes to shove, if you ask the majority of Israel of Israelis who are not the family members of those 129 hostages who remain held in captivity barbarically by Hamas against all the Unitarian law and, as you said, the, the the laws of war. If push comes to shove, and you had to ask the person, what is more important, the release of an individual hostage or the destruction of Hamas and the protection of the future viability and and security of our state and our society, including the return of all of the 300,000 Israeli civilians who've been expelled from their homes yeah. and their internal refugees to enable 
our society and them, not to mention the security of, of residents of Tel Aviv and the rest of the country who still are suffering as we were yesterday on the 1st of January, our own version of January 1st fireworks and of the, of the barrage of rocket attacks on our civilian population. Yes, all those latter things trump, unfortunately, the safety and the and yeah. burden of, of our hospitals. So it yeah. sounds very harsh, but it's an important element of our reality. It, it is, and it's a, a conversation I had with Elliot Chodoff and uh, Rabbi Shlomo Brody at the beginning of, of of the war, talking about military ethics and what are these priorities and how do you achieve the priorities. Um, that w was a very good conversation. But relating to your to, to the debate with Gershon Baskin, I'm part of the I, I suspect I don't know him. I'm, I've never met him personally, um, but we're connected on social media, and occasionally I'll respond to something that he's that he's posted. But he doesn't necessarily see the just justiceness of our existence in the way in which we exist as a Jewish state alongside people who are enemies. I'm not saying that they're all enemies. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, October seventh played out, then there are a lot more enemies around than we than we either knew or cared to acknowledge before. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's challenging. Let's come back to my theoretical curveball. That yes. should have been a good cliffhanger. You, you you talked about opposing the Gilad Shalit deal and 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 the the primacy of the mil a military victory, keeping the country safe and its citizens safe. But what are you, What what if it was your son who was who was captured that day, or your nephew who was or niece who was at the Nova Music Festival? Do you think you would see it differently? You know, you know. Unfortunately, you're not the first one to ask that question. Of many of us, of most of us, whether we are a minor actor in the in in, in the water splash of, of the the play, which is Israel's you know national uh, existence and the reestablishment of of our sovereignty here, or or some of our leaders, um, and in many cases, it's not even theoretical. Um, we have heard the families of hostages say everything across the spectrum. There are those who advocate, and that's correct, for immediate ceasefire and do whatever is necessary, pay whatever price necessary to get the hostages out. We, we've heard the families of others say, no, don't stop this war. Continue to prosecute it. I heard one father saying on the radio, and it was crushing in in, in the, the, the emotion that he was expressing, that it, it uh, engendering in, in those of us listening, saying, as far as I'm concerned, my daughter's dead. And that's the way I'm looking at this. She's, I have, I've had to accept that she will not emerge from this alive. And in fact, I hope she's already dead. Because if she's not, then they're mistreating and abusing her, as we've seen, they're not just capable of, but have carried out the most brutal and horrific uh, acts of uh, rape and torture, which I obviously am not going to mention in any more detail here. It, horrific and, and, and almost beyond comprehension, worse than any Kill Bill movie or anything else that we, any of us have, have uh, subjected ourselves to. And this father was saying, I hope my daughter's dead. That's tragic. It's crushing. And yet, I think it is probably one of the most healthy and, and strong psychological and, and emotional approaches that, that uh, a family member can take in this circumstance. And that leads me to answer not at all casually, but I would say I hope. I, I have sons, sons-in-law, daughters, myself. I, I served for 17 years as a combat medic, 
athletic in, in the reserves. And when my son went into the army, we had two conversations, one of which was um, not being casual. Again, Jonathan, you know that, that there's so many backstories. We don't have enough time to go into all of them and all of these issues. But I said to him something which uh, I think most Israeli parents feel the same. Um, obviously, follow the rules of engagement, follow the laws of, of opening fire. But if you feel your life is in danger, shoot the bastard, and then I will work assiduously to make sure that you know you're you're exonerated afterwards. But the business of trying to decide, you know, what the legal advocate uh, general is going to say over my shoulder: Do I open fire or do I not? That was something that we agreed on when my son. The second thing was discussed it with many both friends and children's friends and friends of children uh, who've served um and that is you know it, it, you're captured don't subject don't endanger uh anyone um in order to try and secure my release um and that's a very very hard thing to say it's a hard thing to hear as you said as a verbal you're going to me as a father as, a, as an uncle as somebody with friends and family in the military um, but I think that that would, I think, be still my answer. I would come down on the side of those families who even today are saying, we need to end this once and for all. We need to secure our future of our country and our society. And if I, if my children, family or friends need to sacrifice their lives in order to ensure that, then let's damn well get it done. And I will mourn and I will treasure their memory and, and I will work to ensure that it, that their sacrifice isn't in vain. And that's part of the, the public discourse that, that we're seeing today, not just in this conversation, but in Israeli media and around our Shabbos tables. Yeah. yeah, thank you for that. You articulated things that are hard to articulate, and I'm glad our listeners had the benefit of you uh, doing that. And um, can I can I take this to a, to another place, Jonathan? Yeah. Your conversation, but since you, you know, Reminded me of something very important, which we have to get to. But we we mentioned that Hamas is only able to not just carry out the atrocities it did on October seventh, but over the last 20, 30 years to exist and to and to fire rockets to our civilian population and and to basically oppress their own people. They're only able to do this with the support of Iran. Correct. And one of the issues that, of course, are being debated now, uh, vociferously, both in public and in private debates and in the security cabinet, no. how or when, not whether, but how and when will we uh, finally act to either deter or destroy the Iranian, both meddling in our region and or attempts to and, and inclination and interest in uh, um, both military operations against Israel and or destroying Israel. And so... I'm relating this to what we're saying about the sacrifices that we have to take for the future of our country. I gave a talk a few years ago when it seemed like we were seriously considering bombing the Iranian underground and nuclear facility. Right. Bunker busters from America. Right. And I had a question in a talk, this was out in Colorado, a number of years ago. The question was, would Israel actually do that? You know, if it, if it risked, risked uh, a, a wider regional war or, or others. I gave a very stark answer because I had just heard a briefing with a number of international journalists from Gilad uh, Erdan, uh, not sorry, Dura Island, former national security right. advisor, he's really gone, and, a, and a, a general. 
in the reserves in the Israeli army. One of our foremost national security experts. We had just given a briefing with numbers and statistics of what an attack on Iran, on Iran's nuclear facilities would involve, how difficult it would be, how possible it was, and what it would engender in terms of attitude. I'll, I'll repeat them here just for our listeners very quickly. If and when, and I unfortunately am using the term when, Israel or America or some coalition of, of Western free societies, let's talk about Israel, uh, were to attack Iranian nuclear facilities. What would happen would be uh, a minimum of two to 3,000 Israeli soldiers probably dying or being captured in the midst of, of that attack because they couldn't do it entirely by air. It would involve probably 20 or 30,000 civilian casualties in Iran. It would, and what is a civilian? They may all be defense contractors, but okay. civilians, as in not not uh, uh, uniformed soldiers of the of the Revolutionary Guards of the Iranian military. It would engender a retaliatory attack by Iran, which might well injure or kill tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of Israelis. Here's where we got emotion, because I said categorically in every survey over the last twenty years of the Israeli population. A vast majority of Israelis, and here I'm talking about 90%, those kind of figures are unheralded, unprecedented in any democracy on the planet, let alone in Israel, which is a pretty divided society at the best of times on social or economic or political issues. 90% of Israelis consistently agree with the following statement. If Iran is on the brink of gaining nuclear weapons, Israel should carry out a military, defensive military operation to prevent that. And we understand, all of us, that that could mean hundreds of thousands of Israelis injured or dying in a retaliatory missile attack. Now, why would we agree to such a thing? And the answer is very simple. If Iran gets a nuclear weapon, they'll use it. Correct. None of us have any illusions. And if they use a nuclear weapon, then if not destroying Israel, it would certainly kill half our population, destroy half of our industrial, if not 70% of our industrial capacity, all in that coastal area between Haifa and Ashdod and Gulik Tel Aviv and what have you, and it would be decades of destruction and and, and, and challenges for Israel. Let's not complete destruction of Israel. So wait right. that of, you know, five million dead and the destruction of our country, a few hundred thousand casualties on our side and tens of thousands, if not hundreds on their side, is a price that Israelis are willing to pay for the for the security and the and the eventual um uh yep. stability safety of, of the enterprise that we call the modern nation state of Israel. So writ large, I wanted to bring up that from an understanding of what one does to to pursue that kind of a goal to ensure the, the future of our society. And then you look at the, the at, at the more smaller picture and the same applies to unfortunately our soldiers or hostages that that uh, uh, we as a society recognize are precious uh, and to be treasured and to be protected, but if in the final analysis have to be sacrificed, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful things about this this period now. We've lost 500 soldiers, not to mention civilians, um, in in the last three months of warfare. And the stories and the and the letters and the and, and the, the messages that these soldiers have sent home, young and old and married and single and male and female and religious and not and also by the way Arab. Christians and Muslims through as well as Jews saying, I am prepared. I'm dedicated to the future of my family, my tribe, 
my people, my nation, and this is what I am here for, and I am willing to make this sacrifice for you, my family, and my friends, and my and my country. And and it's it's tragic and beautiful at the same. Wow, wow, that, that I'm so glad that that tragic and beautiful at the same time. Exactly. You know, um, we're going to take one more final break, but before yeah. we do, I've never. I've never highlighted in two and a half years of this podcast on all of the other webinars, my line at the beginning where I say, we want to give you a window to look through experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. You just gave everybody one of the most core DNA Israeli issues that we face. And I would only add, you, we didn't even mention in a uh, attack on Iran, the punishing blow that will come from Hezbollah in the north with what's estimated 150,000 missiles. But I think if we've estimated, I think we probably can acknowledge that if we, um, we, we underestimated Hamas and therefore we're probably underestimating Hezbollah. But let's take a break and come back and then begin to wrap up the conversation. The restoration of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel was an earth-shattering event. For Christians, it was a confirmation that God always keeps his covenantal promises. Today, we are blessed to see God's fingerprints in the modern miracle of the land of Israel playing out in our lives among the people and in the state of Israel. This year, on the occasion of Israel's 75th anniversary, the Genesis 123 Foundation has been privileged to bring together 75 Christian leaders from around the world to lend their unique voices, sharing their personal faith experiences relating to Israel and their in-depth insight into Israel's history and spiritual significance, creating an historical, one-of-a-kind, high-end coffee table book, Israel the Miracle. Israel the Miracle's stunning imagery will fill your home with the hope of fulfilled promises and conversations about Israel. It's a perfect gift to anyone for any occasion, and most of all, to yourself. You'll also be a blessing to Israel, knowing that the proceeds will go to bless Israelis of all backgrounds. Be a part of Israel the miracle and bring the land, the people, and the state of Israel into your heart and into your home. Visit IsraelTheMiracle.com to get your limited edition copy today. Um, Arye, we've spoken a lot, and this has been. I'm, I'm glad for all the reasons that me having you. Not that I wouldn't have had you back multiple times, and probably will do in the future. But this is a great topic and 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 a catalyst for this conversation today. Um, specifically about the hostages. Before we move on, I want to talk generally about the war and impacting you and you're here a long time you're here 30 years and you've you've right right uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm not i'm not quite 20 and i still feel like i'm new yeah and it, it's it's bizarre but i want to talk with you about what you've seen and what this impacts but is there anything else before we move on from hostages specifically that you want to highlight that's important to highlight other than people signing the petition um well, I, I do say I don't want to repeat what we already said. I do think that Israel definitely needs to hear from the world community again and again. It's something that you hear our spokespeople referring to the brutality that Hamas attacked every time they're, and I congratulate Mark Regev uh, in particular, 
um, who's a, a senior advisor in the prime minister's office, um, not letting an interviewer get away with the focus on, of course, the tragic and unfortunate loss of civilian lives in, in Gaza. That's a different topic we won't cover now is how we count those. Who are civilians and who are not? Correct. Whose do we trust? But but uh, uh, Mark in particular, but others tell, Heinrich and others are always at pains to remind the viewers or the listeners of what Hamas did and, and carried out. And that's something that I think the international community needs to be better at. In other words, the UN uh, Secretary General, the pre President Biden has been terrific and that's acknowledged by all Israelis in terms of the support, especially in the initial uh, weeks of, of the campaign from the American government, President Biden himself. But all of the leaders of Europe, America, the, the international community need to incorporate into their vocabulary an explicit recognition of the suffering and anguish of the families of the hostages and the hostages. Yeah. And the unacceptability of Hamas holding hostages. In other words, you know, we have different, it's like in domestic law. There is a difference between homicide, meaning premeditated murder, attempted murder, physical assault, burglary or, or theft. We, we have a, a continuum of, 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 of evil, if you will. And what Hamas is doing by holding these hostages is even more evil than the right. evil they've carried out for the last 20 or 30 years of firing rockets into civilian populations and forcing their own civilian population to be threatened by a retaliatory attacks. So, so the world community needs to articulate that even when they're calling on Israel to act differently or to have a humanitarian cause or whatever else they're trying to advocate. That's the last thing I would say. Excellent. Thank you. Very, very important to, to highlight. So Ari, talk, what, what's changed in your life and perception of being here? You're here three decades and we're, we're in this war three months. Well, I interesting you ask. First of all, just to correct you, not that it's important. It's been four decades. Four decades. I apologize. I'm older than I look, right? <laughs> uh, but um, I, I think, and I'm sure that you've addressed this in previous podcasts, so we don't need to dwell on it. The unity of purpose that we have found here, uh, it, it's not unprecedented. We have had other situations, both military and otherwise, where I've seen the Jewish people come together. Unfortunately, usually within the context of a national tragedy, it's kidnapping of three boys never years ago. True. Um, and, and other situations. But um, what I've seen, um, which I think is a result both of the power of social media, the positive power of social media, um, as well as um, the, 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 I think, relatively unique elements of what has been described as the startup nation, meaning the innovative and creative capacity of the Israeli society, as well as our our, our kind of gung-ho, take-charge attitude and uh, and not necessarily obeying all the rules type of thing. Um, we've seen come out in so many different ways. I mean, we, we are not unique, my family, but I happen to right to a woman stepdaughter is a is a, a professional chef and, and my family has cooked I'm not exaggerating thousands of meals for refugees and and soldiers over the last uh, eight to, to ten weeks um outside of the framework of we have sergeant majors of every unit that that makes sure that the, the soldiers are fit 
and and we have social services that try and provide for the the internal refugees from the south and the north. Um, but these are private initiatives, whether it's Israeli society, strictly orthodox, completely secular, everywhere in the middle and truly traditional, Druze, Bedouin, Muslim, Christian, what have you, have literally come together to provide for so many different needs, social, psychological, emotional, within the context of communities or synagogues or or, or cultural centers or what have you, um, or just neighborhood committees, which is is phenomenal. My daughter, who gave birth just six weeks ago, well, her husband her husband got out for the actual birth, but he has been in the army since October 7th. He got called up on the morning of October 7th. He has had a few different furloughs, but basically has been in for the last three months, including the birth of his of his third child there, my, my latest grandson. And my daughter, who is therefore all alone for any time that he's not out, um, is uh Frequently, just finding meals on her doorstep from a local neighborhood committee that recognize the difficulties that that she faces as not just a young and and new newly uh, new mother with another two toddlers at home, but uh, being alone without uh, without her husband. And these kind of things, while not I don't think unprecedented, as I said, um, really gives I think all of us a, a tremendous feeling of confidence, optimism, even in the midst of this horrific situation that we find ourselves in, both with the hostages and the barbarity of the initial savage attacks and the ongoing military campaign in war, and, and the trepidation that we have about that opening up uh, another front with his father. I mean, what does that mean, opening up another front? Michael Warren just wrote a piece uh, that came out today talking about how Israel has to say no to the United States and treaties to not respond to his father. His father has fired more rockets over the last three months, as Michael points out, uh, than Hamas did. Um, uh, and, and, and it's almost not even recognized within the context of what we're facing with these proxies of Um And even with that trepidation, the existential fear of uh, a wider war, including against Iran and Syria and what you, um, it kind of, under, it, it, it explains to a certain extent, just tying a few threads together, few months ago, there was one of these, you know, periodic surveys of happiness and uh, what have you in different societies across the world. And Israel is ranked like number four after Sweden and yeah, and right, Norway right, as the happiest and most confident society on the planet. Makes no sense. How is that possible even without the last three months of warfare? And the answer is, it's part of our of our DNA. It's part of our traditional understanding of how the universe works and our place in it. Um, our our mission to be a light unto the nations, not to wax too biblical, but uh, but our, our mission to make the world a better place that we've taken seriously, both in business and technical innovation, as well as agriculture and making the desert bloom and trying to be the most moral and, ex- and, and succeeding in being the most moral uh, modern Western military force on the planet or in history, as Colonel Richard Kemp in the UK says, in history, in terms of our protection of, of uh, civilian run combatants in our military operations. And it just goes to show the reason that 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 this came out in the last three months is because it's really part of the fundamental basis of our mutually supporting society based on a traditional understanding of what our purpose as a nation, as a tribe, as a country, as a family, because we're just one big family here. And that I mean not just Jews, Jews, Christians, Muslims, of course. 
et cetera, who are part of Israel, that we have that that understanding of our place in the world and that we have a sense of purpose. We're not here simply to live, to make money, to to feel good and do good and, and party and be happy. Uh, it, it goes back just to connect because we're speaking English, and I'm assuming that most of our listeners are probably from the States. The original understanding of what the founding of the United States meant for both the citizens and residents of those 13 colonies, as well as the world itself, this universal value of democracy and, 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 and liberalism, freedom, uh, and being, you know, that city on a hill, the new Jerusalem, that sense of purpose permeated the American society in our first yeah. six months, six years, sorry, six, uh, uh, six decades or so. And it's still true here in Israel after 75 years, a sense of purpose and meaning. It's a national, uh, as well as societal, religious, and traditional, and cultural. Amazing. Arya, you've given a great definition to the name of this podcast, Inspiration from Zion. I'm glad we're wrapping up with that positive note. Um, I look forward to, to doing this again, hopefully not in war, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back. Again, uh, the book is My Israel Trail. People can get it at myisraeltrail.com and be in touch with Arya there. Hopefully I'll remember in the next few hours to add your uh, information to the speaker's notes. Apologies in advance if I don't. Uh, but Arya, really, thank you so much for for taking the time today. It's a, it was great. Really great. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I just want to say, Jonathan, I appreciate the long form. Um, oh. Uh, uh, it's nice to have a real conversation. So thank you for having me on. Well, you're welcome. Uh, the irony is we could go on for a number of hours. Uh, this it would be fascinating. Um Anyway, you, you mentioned we're, we've been speaking about books. Uh, you mentioned uh, Colonel Richard Kemp. So everybody who's been following uh, Inspiration from Zion for the last two years knows that we offer a special treat at the end of every podcast, encouraging people to like and follow and share the link to this project, uh, to this program. Um, specifically this year, um, since the summer when our first book came out called Inspiration, uh, excuse me, Israel the Miracle, which is available at israelthemiracle.com. And one of our authors is Colonel Richard Kemp. Uh, we're offering everybody, every uh, everyone every month, the opportunity to like, follow, and uh, and share the link to, uh, and comment on this program. And when you do, at the end of this month, we select one person at random to receive a free copy and it's an expensive book. It's $75 retail, but it's a stunning uh, coffee table book and, and called Israel the Miracle. We look forward to you uh, getting yours. Um, I also want to acknowledge always our podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're ever in the area and need something, please pop in or just go and thank them for helping make conversations like this possible. And special thanks to the Coin family as well for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. Um, I'm sad to do this, but it's an honor. We always use this point to um, have this episode, the episode um, dedicated in, in honor or memory or, or of someone or something. Um, this week, we learned of the death of uh, the nephew of a friend and colleague, Sandra Oster-Barris, whose, nep whose nephew Amichai Yisrael Yoshua Oster was a 24-year-old reservist and was killed in Gaza. It underscores the point that even with 
I say in quotes, just a few hundred soldiers um, who have been killed. Everybody knows somebody or everybody knows somebody who knows somebody. And Sandra, we wish you and your family um, all the comfort and strength as, as you go forward. Um, if you'd like to sponsor a future episode or in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. As always, we love to hear your comments as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, especially questions you have about traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs. Please share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and all your loved ones are safe and healthy, and I send my blessings from right here in the Judean Mountains. God bless you.